I didn't understand how that could happen because literally a month or two ago, everybody was celebrating stock investing. And I thought this was a safe bet because you're buying companies. And you would think if everybody talks about it, these companies must be valued correctly. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by my How to Start Building Your Wealth Investing in the Stock Market online course. The complete, proven, step-by-step course to guide you from novice to confident investor. To get your 35% discount on this course, go to myworstinvestmentever.com slash deals. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest Nicholas Hinrichson. Nicholas, are you ready to rock? I'm so ready. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Yes. And, you know, I just want to say I really have enjoyed our discussion prior to this. So I look forward to you sharing a lot of the journey that you've been through. So let me just introduce you to the audience. Nicholas was born and raised in Germany and played on the German national golf team. So now you know what you can ask him to do on a weekend. And he studied computer science and finance in Germany, Chile, and Australia. At the start of his career, he looked into consulting and investment banking, but instead joined a renewable energy startup that invested in projects in China and India. Wow. In 2011, he moved to the U.S. to get his MBA at Stanford Business School, and by 2013, he started a company called Carlipso. He brought that startup through Y Combinator in 2014, raised 10 million bucks in venture funding by 2015, and sold the company to Carvana in 2017. Carvana went public at a market capitalization of $2.5 billion and is now the most valuable used car retailer in the US. Congratulations, that's pretty awesome. But there's more. Nicholas and his co-founder, Chris Coleman, recently left Carvana to start withclutch.com, a fully digital platform that lets car owners refinance their auto loans from the comfort of their own home. The team at With Clutch has seen that in the US, only 5% of auto loan applications were for refinancing, yet 47% of all funded mortgage applications were refinancing. They are going to change that. Nicholas, fill in a few tidbits about your life. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. You make me sound like a very impressive person. I feel flattered. Yeah, all of that sounds like a really straightforward journey. That, that's not how it was. Like it was, <laughs> especially the four years when we ran our own company, we were struggling. It was the most humbling four years of my life. We were, nothing ever seems to work, seemed to work every day where we felt like, and now we, we cracked the nut, another problem showed up. In the beginning, for example, we, we were doing peer-to-peer car sales. So that would help you sell your car to somebody else. And if you do that, and if you run the risks to, that come with the business, cars get stolen, for example. So I had to chase a stolen car on the highway, had to call the cops. Not the best day of my life. But yeah, then things started to improve. We changed the model a little bit. What was really interesting is we, we spent four years building a car retail, online car retail company. But what we sold was a software company. So at the end of the four years, we realized that the real value we created was not selling cars and making margin on the cars we were selling, but instead the software that was powering everything. Because Carvana was much bigger at the time, 
we got along very well with the founders over there and realized that if we just combined the efforts, brought all our team to Carvana, the software could be used at a much larger scale. And so that's what we ended up doing. Mm, exciting. That's, uh, I can picture you calling the cops to try to catch that. I have a story about my own business. One of my businesses is a coffee business in Thailand, and uh, it's a factory, roasting factory. And we did have someone steal from us many, many years ago. And we submitted all the documents and we told her, you know, please pay us back. We have all the evidence that you did this. And, you know, if you don't pay us back that money within three days, we're going to submit a, a case to the police. And so she didn't pay it back. So we submitted the case and there was a warrant for her arrest and she kind of disappeared. But then one day I was downtown Bangkok sitting there eating a bowl of noodles with a friend of mine and I saw her walk by. No and way. I thought, I thought, oh, wow. So I told my friend, I got to go. And I ran out. And I, ha I had a copy of the warrant in my pocket that I carried around with me for just this very moment. So I followed her just to make sure it was her. And then once I saw that, she jumped into a taxi. And I decided, I called my friend who was the policeman who was handling this case. And he said, try to bring her to the local police station. So I, I jumped into the taxi in the front seat. And she you know recognized me obviously and when i told her to talk to this policeman and you should come um, she threw my phone and ran out of the car and then she ran down the street and i was kind of running down the street and then i just decided take it easy don't need to chase her just look around for a cop i've got you know it's there's a warrant this is a simple situation and then a, a motorcycle pulled up next to her on the street because she was on the phone and she yeah. jumped on the back of that motorcycle and you know what I did? I ran as fast as I could and I jumped on the back of the motorcycle too. <laughs> and eventually they stopped the motorcycle and she got on and said, what are you doing? And I was like, you gotta, gotta. And so eventually I found a police officer and we brought her to the police department and tried to resolve the situation. But the point is, I know the feeling when you're in a startup, yeah. and you, everything is riding on it. I mean, if I let this go, you know, it shows that I don't have respect for everybody and the company and stuff. So I can definitely picture, you know, you got to hustle. You got to hustle. <laughs> nobody's going to protect your assets like you. So in our case, it was interesting because we were paranoid that somebody would steal a car eventually. And our advisor said, why are you paranoid? It's not a question of whether it'll happen. It'll definitely happen. It's a question of when it happens, what are you going to do? So just prepare for it. And so that helped us to sleep well at night again. We prepared for it. Everything we thought we put in place didn't work because things are always different. But at least we got some good nights of sleep just until somebody stole a vehicle <laughs> and we got it back. That's a good lesson. Well, I just want to ask you one last question before we go on to the question. And that is, if you could summarize the one thing that you gained from attending Y Combinator, I think the audience would love to hear that. Okay, great. Yeah. So there's a number of things you learn when you go, you go through Y Combinator, ranging from like following their motto to having people keep you accountable. The number one thing we learned was leave the building and do things that don't scale. And so that, that sounds counterintuitive because most of the companies built in, at, at Y Combinator are technology companies. So you wonder why would you leave the building? And so it, it took us a little bit of time to understand exactly what they meant with that. What we realized is you have a lot of hypotheses in your head and you're picturing how customers will react to your value proposition. But if you don't talk to them, 
if you don't get their feedback, if you don't look in their eyes and understand the emotions, everything going around that, that happens in the transaction, our case, buying or selling used car, you don't learn anything. Like you can't make up the things that, that happen in reality when somebody buys a car and it's a big purchase. And so what we ended up doing is we did a lot of things that didn't scale. We, we joined com customers on test drives. We talked to customers in person. We even detailed cars ourselves. And so what we found is detailing, for example, was very, very important. The way the cleanliness of the car was a major driver to converting customers into buying cars. And so detailing cars at scale was very easy to do. Mm. Learning that that's the most important factor we would have never done had we, had we sat in front of the computer and not left the building. Wow. So yeah, for a startup, all you need to do at the very beginning, leave the building, talk to customers. You know, it's interesting because I've been a financial analyst for almost 30 years now. And for that 30 years, I've taught finance to young people at university. And basically, I've dedicated my whole life to finance. I love the subject. There's so much to learn. But the one thing I always tell my young students is that not one of my great ideas about investing came from sitting at my desk looking at an Excel spreadsheet. And what I tried to do is teach them that the highest value added activity for an analyst or a person, a fund manager, is the highest value activity is to get out of the office, talk to the companies, talk to the competitors, talk to your clients, the fund managers, get out. And so I've actually designed a system that I sell that's an infrastructure system basically for brokers and fund management companies that basically can guarantee, I can guarantee that a senior analyst or a senior fund manager does not have to be in the office. In fact, my most successful clients get rid of the desks of their senior analysts. And oh, that, wow. I do that by taking the whole process of financial analysis, forecasting, and valuation out of the hands of the senior analysts. And that's something that, you know, can add a lot of value. So I, I love what you've just shared. And I think the audience can learn a lot from that. So, well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. <laughs> Man, I was worried you were gonna ask me that. <laughs> so picture this, I am 16. The only thing I knew how to do well back then was play golf. So that's how I spent my, my youth during high school. And then all of a sudden, all my friends in school, even some golfers, started talking about technology companies, investing. And so I, hadn't, I had a few savings, like maybe $1,000, maybe two at the time. And that felt like a lot of money to me. And all my friends said, no, you need to invest. You can easily 10x that money. And I know here's a success story. And I did it. And look, my stock portfolio increased. And so I felt like I was missing out. Everybody was making money and I was, I was not. <laughs> and so then I tried to understand, so what would it take to get in the stock market? And it was back then, this early days of the internet, online banking started. And so what I learned was I need to sign up for an account, go to the physical branch, verify my identity. And then eventually I got, I got access to the stock market. And that was like such an exciting day because I could lock in. And all of a sudden, this was like going to the grocery store for the first time. I could start shopping. But then what do I buy? So I didn't know. There were so many stocks I could buy. Which one would I pick? And nobody could tell me which one to pick. And so another guy said, like, you need to buy these magazines. 
and then just read about the stocks they're talking about. Because if they're talking about they must be undervalued and otherwise they wouldn't recommend buying those stocks. I'm like, okay, so I'll do that. I started buying these magazines, read up on all the companies and didn't know any one of those. Only one resonated with me because that happened to be the, the Germany's biggest communication company, Telecom, so the, the parent company of T-Mobile here in the US. So I said, well, that sounds like a good tech company because the internet and stock price has risen and risen and risen. So if it did that yesterday, of course it will continue to go up. So I took these $1,000, $1,500 or whatever I had and I bought the stock. That was the highest price the stock has ever traded. <laughs> ever since it went downhill, first slowly. And, and you remember the actual price? I think I bought it at $120 and yep. then I kept the stock for also the stock I've kept longest in my life probably 15 years. Okay. 23 when I sold it. <laughs> so I All right, so tell us that progression. <laughs> yeah, it was insane. Like first there was a little, like there was one correction. It went from, I think, 120 to 100. And all the magazines kept writing about telecom, very important company in the new, new tech era. So whoever has capital, buy more of those. I obviously had spent all my money on the first stock. So I could just, all I could do is watch from the sideline, but it started creeping up again, 101, 102. And I got started celebrating, started feeling better on myself, but then it really crashed. And all of a sudden all the tech companies went out of business and it went straight, straight downhill to 80, to 60, to 40, uh, to 20. And like when you followed the chart, you could see it go to zero within weeks of where we were. I couldn't understand it. I didn't understand how that could happen because literally a month or two ago, everybody was celebrating stock investing. And I thought this was a safe bet because you're buying companies and you would think if everybody talks about it, these companies must be valued correctly. Obviously I didn't even know how to value companies at the time. So I knew nothing. A very, very humbling experience, not because of the money I lost because luckily like it was actually, it was a, a cheap price to learn the lesson that helped me in life later on. And I'll tell you what I learned from it in mm. a second. But um, I just felt embarrassed. I felt, I felt like I'm such an idiot. Mm -hmm. like, how did I not see this? And why did I follow everyone? I clearly was like the last person to follow the masses and, and fell for it. And so, yeah, I've, I wouldn't be as emotionally, as emotional as I am. <laughs> telling this story if, if it didn't resonate and if I didn't learn something from it. So yeah, that mm. was probably the worst investment. And just so I, just so we understand, how did you finally decide to get rid of it? Oh, at the time I got rid of, Oh yeah, that's an interesting story. I moved to the U S and then since I was starting to work in the U S yeah, it must've been 2013. That's when I started working in the U S so I was taxed in the U S and I had a foreign bank account, which I wasn't allowed to have in Germany because uh, I wasn't a resident of Germany anymore. And so the banks in Germany said, we need to transfer your portfolio to your bank in the US. I'm like, this is not worth the effort. <laughs> but just sell this stupid stock. I'll give this money to my mom, <laughs> pay my bills, and I'm done with it. But yeah, I, that's how, how the saga ended. Got it. All right. So what lessons did you learn from this experience? The stock market is tricky. I, I recently listened to a really, really interesting YouTube video podcast of Ray Dalio, yep. where he said succeeding in the stock market is harder than winning the gold medal at the Olympics. And so at first I'm like, 
that doesn't seem right because that's pretty hard. It's like, no. If you look at how many players there are in the stock market, it's a zero-sum game, at least short term. If you want to win, you need to win against everyone. And you're not going to be that guy, especially if you don't spend all your life and time in the stock market. You might get lucky, but that doesn't mean you did the right decision. That just meant you got lucky. And so when, when I sold my company, that was the first time, not ever since I invested $1,500 in a stock, but that was the first time where I had more money than I needed on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. When, when we ran our company, our startup, we kept our salaries really, really low. So all of a sudden, I had more money that I was spending day-to-day. And so I asked myself, what do I do with the capital? At first, I had it in a savings account, earned 2% or whatever. And then the more I read, including for blog posts of our advisor, Andy Ratcliffe, who started Wealthfront, mm-hmm. I, I learned that like, cash, cash is not great, especially if there's inflation. And cash, you actually lose money in, long, in the long run. So you don't want to hold cash. I wasn't planning on making any bigger decisions. So I needed to invest it in some assets. I had at the time the majority of my net worth invested in Carvana because we were paid in stock when we sold Mm. our company. Very volatile stock, very interesting stock, obviously, but early stage company and you need a diversified portfolio. And then I remembered, okay, I'm clearly not good at picking stocks. The one time I did, I lost 80% of my money. I'm also incredibly emotional when it comes to investing because if I lose a dollar or a percent or two percent, I panic. I'm like, I can feel I want to withdraw the money and, and then mm. I miss the upswing on the next day. Yep. And so what I learned is you really want to invest in a diversified portfolio. You want to outsource all the management to somebody who's not emotional. I'm, I'm a big fan of Andy Ratcliffe and Wealthfront. This, I highly recommend using that service or mm. one of these robo advisors because it, it does exactly these two tricks. You invest in a diversified portfolio and you outsource the management to somebody who's not emotional. And over the very long run, and I'm talking 10, 15, 20 years, the return of the stock market will be 6 to 7% per year. In the short run, you see this massive, these massive swings, including the last couple of weeks. I mean, it was crazy. Mm. But these, these disappear if you zoom out and look at the long run. And so what you need to do is be not emotional, outsource the decision-making to somebody else, and let somebody else manage your money and, and over the long term. You can't time it and you can only make or only preserve your wealth or make money if you're investing for the long term. Got it. And so now the decision I'm making is I'm asking myself how much cash do I need for projects or things I want to buy and everything else I need to commit long term to the stock market into a diversified portfolio. Mm. And I bet had I had... Had I had not had that lesson when I was 16, I think I would have tried the same thing with much bigger sums and then losing 80% of a much bigger sum would have been so much more hurtful than the lesson I had to learn when I was 16. So I'm really grateful for it. Wow. I mean, that's a great message too. I mean, a great way to end it because I can tell you that I worked with different entrepreneurs and startup guys and what ends up happening is when they sell their company, they feel very confident or, or even when they're, you know, their company's running and they feel confident in their skills and they take that confidence to the stock market or to their financial advisor that, that shows up on the scene and then they start investing. And I've seen exact cases of people losing almost all the money that okay. they got from the selling of their company or the profits from their company. 
And it, you know, the stock market is just much more complex than that, as you mentioned from Ray yeah. Dalio. So let me summarize some of my takeaways. You know, you, there's a lot of things that you mentioned that triggers you know, me to write a lot of stuff. And one of the first one is, you know, the fear of missing out, FOMO. And, you know, the idea of hearing a success story and then feeling like it's happening, everybody's making money here. And the first thing I always tell people is that people only talk about their winners. So you have to be really careful what you hear. Do not believe anything that you hear. Because even if they're talking about their total portfolio, you don't even know if it was because of luck. You don't know anything when you hear someone talk about it. So be very careful listening to other people talk about their investments. The second thing is the idea of, you know, being able to outperform or perform well in stock picking by following the news. If a magazine or a newspaper or an, an online source of news is successful, they are successful because they have millions and millions of viewers and all that. You're not the first person that news has gone to. And if it's a magazine or even a newspaper, it's definitely yesterday's news. The third thing is you mentioned something that I want to highlight, which is that, you know, you feel you felt better about yourself when the stock went up, you know, back up, bounced up to 101 or whatever. And I think that it's a very important thing to remember that stock market investing is, in fact, a physical activity and a great book. To explain that is Martin Zweig's book called Your Money in Your Brain. And it explains how stock market movements, when we watch stocks, it actually causes a physical reaction. And the other thing you talked about is, you know, you have to, to win in investing, you have to win against everyone. And, you know, another thing, as you mentioned about what Ray Dalio said is, you know, the role of luck. Part of what I've learned over the years is that the role of luck, particularly in the area of finance and investing, is very high. And the last takeaway, I mean, I got a lot out of this. The last takeaway is that holding money in the bank, many people do that because they say, look, I'm low risk, but they don't realize, and this is, I think, actually kind of appropriate with what's going on with the pandemic and all that these days, is that there is no action in life that is risk-free. Every single action has a benefit and a cost. And if you put money into the bank and you don't get the interest payment, it doesn't grow and you have now exposed yourself to shortfall risk, the risk that the money that you need at retirement will not be there. And so those are the takeaways I've gotten. But anything you'd add? No, I, I really liked your summary. One, one thing to add to the FOMO, which I think is a really interesting concept because it's just human. Humans act either out of fear or out of greed. It's one or the other when it comes to investing, at least. Neither of these forces help you. If you feel like the stock market is down, or went down, you act out of fear because it could go further down, you're willing to sell, you miss the upswing. If stocks go up, you get greedy. You're like, I should go into the market. It just went up, so you're buying expensive. And so I recognize that, again, during the pandemic when the market was very volatile, I had documented my plan, what I do with my cash actually in 2018. I wrote down exactly what I would do. And in order to not be emotional, I just, that was literally four weeks ago, six weeks ago, I put out this document and read it and convinced myself with the arguments I used back then. It's like, you need to be in this for the long run. If there is a big correction, which I'm sure there will be, 
just sit back, relax, don't make any decisions because three months later, it will have at least to some extent recovered. And then in the very, very long term, you'll have made 6% year over year. And that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. That, that long-term angle, you know, I wrote a book about how to start building your wealth, investing in the stock market. I wrote it, I published it about five years ago for my nieces as I tried to help them, you know, invest and they just really didn't have any interest in the stock market. And at that time and before it was actually 10 years ago that I started my first niece with an investment account and getting her, you know, investing at that time, you know, there weren't the robo options. Now the robo options definitely in the U S it's very common. It's less common around Asia where I am. So, but the principles that I try to teach is that most people are going to be investing month by month. They're not going to say, Oh, I got half a million dollars and I'm going to invest in the stock market today. So the lump sum thing is a very special case. And we have to look at that in a little bit of a different way. That's true. That's but true. The, but the, for the majority of people, we're contributing every single month. And the fact is, is that if you're contributing every single month and you actually put the money in at the absolute peak of the market, it doesn't matter. 20 years from now, 30 years from now, it won't matter sure. because you'll have been putting it in as it went down and as it went up and all that. And so... The way I explain it, Nicholas, is that it's like, imagine that you have an 18-year-old son and he says to you, dad, I want to become a basketball player. And he's, he's pretty tall. He's pretty good at basketball. He says, I want to get in the NBA. And he says, I think you can do it. And he says, and I've done some research and I've studied and I realize there's three things that matter when it comes to being a successful NBA, you know, star. Number one, you got to be tall. Number two, you got to be strong. And number three, you got to be fast. And I've decided that over the next 12 months, I'm going to work on one of these to take me to the NBA. And he says, well, sounds like a pretty good plan, son. <laughs> and so he says, so which one are you going to focus on? He says, I'm going to get taller. <laughs> okay. Obviously, he has focused on the variable that he has that, that he cannot really, yeah. yeah, or that doesn't affect the outcome. And I think that when it comes to investing for beginners, a lot of the problem is that they get caught up in the wrong things and really the, the right thing, whether that's a, a wealth front or whether it's a Vanguard or whatever that is, it's a systematic way of consistently investing. And really it's about time in the market. So, you know, building up that wealth over time. All right. Now, so based on what you've learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Yeah, I think I think I already said it. Sign up for a diversified portfolio. The interesting thing, what started Andy Ratcliffe to start Wealthfront was that he noticed like very wealthy people have access to private bankers and they create diversified portfolios and do tax loss harvesting and you name it. If you have a good exit as an employee in a startup in the Silicon Valley, then you'll make a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars, but no private banker will care about you. And so all of a sudden you have what's admittedly a big sum of money, but you're exposed to the risk that you start managing it. And so that's when Andy realized, okay, that there's a big market for that. We created robo advisors. So even people with less than say a million dollars in net worth have mm. access to a fund manager. Yep. And so I think this is just the right way to go. Beautiful. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? <laughs> Good question. 
I was about to say I want to invest all my time and work on this new startup I'm really excited about. But this conversation actually let me rethink what am I doing right now? Because you have, when you talk about investing, you, at least this is what came to mind, you have wealth creation and wealth preservation. These are very different things. You can't do both at the same time. And so I got very, very, very lucky that I going to Stanford Business School. And I remember one of the lecturers at the last last lecture we, we had telling us, you guys are in this very unique, incredible spot where your downside risk is take a really good job and earn $150,000. Your upside is unlimited. So you have to take big risks. It'd be silly not to. And so I, I just said I was incredibly lucky. I got even luckier. Now with selling the company, I'm in a very similar, if not even better position where my downside mm. is very limited unless I do something stupid with my money, which I took care of. And so now I feel like it's my responsibility to take really big risks. Because if, if somebody in a very lucky position like me doesn't do it, who else would do it? And so, yeah, this is, I want to A, be grateful for the position I am. Mm. And then also like follow through with my responsibility and build another company that impacts people and, and hopefully makes life better in the US. Fantastic. That's exciting. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we end, Nicholas, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And I also want to congratulate you for being one of the brave few who has turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Well, now, first of all, thanks for having me. I am flattered to be part of this. And parting words to the audience, well, run risks, but be smart. Know which risk you're taking. Be very deliberate and choose the ones that you have under control and outsource the ones that you don't to somebody who has them under control. Yeah. And I'm going to, before I'm going to close, I just have to add something that you said that I really like, and that's the, the idea of create and preserve wealth. And what I always tell people, and I wrote in that book, is you do not go to the stock market to create wealth. You go to the stock market to grow wealth. And preserving wealth is another aspect. Many people go to the stock market to grow wealth and they don't preserve it. <laughs> so yeah. you remind me of that, and that fits perfectly with how I close this show every single time, and that is like this. That's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.